0: Hey guys, I'm giving speeches. I'll be at the Connecticut Libertarian Party State Convention on January the 29th and then February the 26th at the State Convention in Utah in Salt Lake City, there. So I don't know, look it up. All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book, Pools, Aaron, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy, and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there, and the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com. Slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys, introducing Richard Hanenye from Defense Priorities. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Scott. How are you? I'm doing really good. Really appreciate you joining us here on the show today. And, you know, I um, finally got a chance to uh, look through a couple of your studies here. Uh, first of all, Phantom Empire, the illusionary nature of U.S. military power. And I had missed this one from last spring. Or mm-hmm. early summer, I guess the inevitable rise of China. So, uh-huh. um, if it's all right, I wanted to start with the phantom empire. What do you mean by that?
1: Uh, so basically, the U.S. Whenever there, it's abroad um, and there's you know discussions about what it's particular, what it's doing in any particular uh, country, uh, the idea is put forth that basically the U.S. needs to be somewhere because it advances American interests, it ama- advances American geopolitical power. So, this is a natural way to think about things. I mean, most of the time when countries have occupied other countries, they've usually gotten something out of it, um, sometimes, you know, by, you know, usually by force or threatening to use force against another country. And, you know, the American empire really doesn't work like that. I mean, it has troops all over the world, and sometimes it's, allies that it, that it defends. Sometimes the U.S. wants to be in those countries more than the countries want them there. The U.S. is there supposedly uh, to protect them. Um, and also often the East American presence doesn't really have much of an influence on their politics because the U.S. wants to be there. Like, you know, like I just said, the U.S. wants to be there often more than the countries themselves want them there. So the U.S. foreign policy establishment, Desperately wants to be in Germany. Uh, the U.S. has no leverage over Germany because it has troops there. Um, because they want them there, uh, the U.S. wants them there, and so you know Germany is going to a large extent its own way on foreign policy on uh, the issue of Russia and Ukraine, what they really care about right now. Um, and so that, that yeah, that's that's the basic idea that the idea that sort of po- power flows from the American you know, American military presence rather than other sources uh, is just we just there's just no reason to think that. Mm-hmm.
0: So you say in here that, um, I guess, you know, you're tacitly acknowledging America does overthrow governments, but you say they don't really overthrow friendly governments. I guess there was that one time they overthrew the government in Australia, but uh, yep. usually they don't do that. Right. And so you're saying that's the, well, they, the, they do the that, joke is you got the Marines there, but nobody thinks they're going to do anything if you don't do what they say.
1: Yeah, they overthrow governments, but usually it's um it's, it's not because of like the American military base, right? They don't they don't usually don't send tanks to overthrow governments. I mean, they have done it a few times to like right. you know Eastern dictatorships. Uh, the U.S. overthrows governments, you know, all the time from Lindsey O'Rourke's research and other places. We 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 all know that. Um, but it's uh you know it's pretty disconnected to so where American uh, troops are stationed abroad. uh
0: uh-huh. But you're saying because say for example in Germany. They don't fear that if they cross the Pentagon that the CIA is going to come and overthrow them or something like that. They know that we won't cross that line. Well,
1: maybe they they do. I mean, maybe, you know, it depends on what kind of government they have. Maybe they they do. Uh, But the point is the the American – like they're not going to use the American military to do it or very, very
0: unlikely to do it. So nobody nobody thinks that. Mm -hmm. But then – so I see your point. I don't know if there's good examples of this where – um, maybe there's countries that they really want American troops there more than the Pentagon wants them there. Or if maybe you have to go to other empires in history where people wanted the foreign bases there uh, more than the empire that had them.
1: Mm. Um, well, I mean, like, for example, Syria. Uh, the government of Syria right now probably uh, wants the Russians there, or did uh, you know they they pulled back? Ah, uh, they pulled back. But when when uh, Russia was helping Syria, Syria was being defended by by Russia. Um, so it mattered a lot more to Syria than it did to Russia, although it did matter to Russia. I think the Eastern European countries, um, you know, the ones that have been added to NATO recently in like Ukraine, which wants to be in NATO, uh, they, they care more about um, a U.S. alliance more than the U.S. does. Um, and so it's not that uncommon. If really American, I think if American foreign policy was... Uh, basically, if you took it at face value about what we're doing abroad, we're defending all these countries against foreign threats, then it would make sense. You would expect those countries to want the U.S. there more than the U.S. wants to be there, right? Like, mm-hmm. whether South Korea gets conquered uh, matters a lot more to South Korea uh, than it does to the United States. Now, often, like, you know, the Philippines, you know, is sort of ambivalent about what and when and wants the U.S. there. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's, uh, it's a few times trying to kick the U.S. out, or the U.S. has had to bribe it. Um, so, you know, that's in a situation where the U.S. wants to be there pretty much more than the Filipi- uh, the Filipinos want them there. Something like Germany, it seems like the elites do want the U.S. there. The U.S. desperately wants to be there, too. So it's, you know, it looks like it's about the same. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the U.S. has to if the U.S. is going to get anything out of these um out of these uh, military presence abroad, um, you know, there's gonna, they're going to need, you know, they would need to basically not want to be there or, or see it as a cost, and often they don't. I mean, they're, they're horrified by any suggestion that the U.S. pull out of you know any country where it has troops in or take on any uh, fewer military commitments than it has in the past. Uh, so this is, you know, this removes any kind of leverage you might have.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you point out in the study that. Even when Donald Trump is really just playing bad cop a little bit and saying, geez, I don't know, maybe I'll pull out of Germany or maybe I'll pull out of Korea, that his own government shouts that he doesn't mean that. So whatever leverage he might have gotten is pretty much just wasted away.
1: Yeah, exa- exactly. I mean, the the reaction to I mean the reaction to Trump when he would say you know some skeptical things about the uh, U.S. presence in Korea or Germany. I mean, it was really over the top. You saw that you know the media and the for, uh, foreign policy establishment and the political elites. I mean, they really they consider this uh, kind of blasphemy pulling out of Afghanistan. I mean, was you could see the uh, you could see sort of the reaction to that in, uh, in the media. So yeah, there's a general bias towards uh, interventionism or at least not. Uh, pulling back from any commitments uh, that the U.S. has at the moment, and the rest of the world can observe our politics. So they're not, you know, it's not a mystery to them uh, what's going on. Mm
0: -hmm. Now, you say that, you know, I guess a lot of the foreign affairs types will cite trade relationships and say, well, we have such a good relationship in trade with the European Union, with Japan, with Korea, and that's because of our military relationship. Look at all this stability. You wouldn't want to undermine that, would you? (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, uh, you know, the, the, so yeah, I mean, there's like a basic argument that, uh, the U S has a, um, you know, that helps develop the relationship and you have more trade. I, you know, I, I don't think anyone has had a good explanation of how exactly that works. The other argument is the U S you know, um, keeps things stable and because it uh supports stability uh in these countries and in these regions uh, that benefits the u.s through through you know trade and investment and and so on just global commerce um and you know that that depends on whether you think the u.s is a force for stability often i th- i think it's not i mean the u.s uh you know the the u the, the u.s um uh uh, rivalry with Russia right now is based to a large extent on the fact that the U.S. wants to bring, um, or potentially wants to bring Ukraine and Georgia into NATO. And when mm-hmm. Georgia launched a uh, a war to re- reclaim South Ossetia, uh, basically because they uh, they wanted to settle that issue, and they wanted to settle that issue because that that would help them get the NATO membership. So the NATO membership, which is supposed to uh, create stability, is really creating instability mm-hmm. uh, by you know making Russia feel encircled and making it re- making it respond uh, to American action. So uh, yeah, I I don't uh, you know, you could have to look at every region individually, but it's not obvious that the U.S. is actually providing a lot of stability.
0: Yeah. You know, it's ironic. I talked with uh, Clint Ehrlich, who you may have seen on uh, the Tucker Carlson show. This guy Mm -hmm. who's a Russia analyst, and he was pointing out that not just France and Germany, but that even the United States does not want to bring Ukraine into NATO. And they haven't under Obama, uh, under Trump and under Biden. They're just stuck on this thing that, well, the Russians can't tell us what to do. We'll be damned if we're going to let another country close the door on NATO membership for somebody. We'll decide. But the whole thing is they already have decided that they don't really want to do this. And now they're going the other direction just because Putin's complaining about it.
1: Yeah, I I don't know if that's true. I mean, they don't want to bring in NATO today. Uh, But if you read Adam Tooze's recent substack on uh, uh, what's going on with Russia, the Ukraine, they were taking, you know, they were taking steps to do so. I mean, they were encouraging Ukraine to sort of, you know, no wait,
0: I mean, George W. Bush promised them in the Budapest memorandum then.
1: Exactly. So I think what the foreign policy elites wants. I mean, they, they don't want to move on. It you know, it's too provocative and it's too complicated to do it now. But I don't have any doubt that uh, foreign policy elites in the U.S. hope that in 10, 20 years, uh, Ukraine is in NATO. Uh, they you know, they're playing the long game here, and that's why they want to keep the uh, the door open. And I think Russia Russia can see what they're doing. So I, I I don't think it's I don't think they've decided it's not worth it. I wish they wish they did, but I don't think they have.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, for a while there I was counting on Angela Merkel to stand in between these guys and now she's gone so uh-huh. I don't know. But she uh, was the probably. she was yeah. the one who really insisted too that they do the Minsk 2 deal to end the war in East Ukraine.
1: Yeah, well, uh, I mean, Germany is blocking tr- uh, weapons transfers to Ukraine uh, through Estonia, and it is basically, it's not as cooperative as America would like. Uh, so Germany, you know, is still there sort of, uh, uh, sort of, you know, pre- preventing a united front. I mean, because they, they depend on Russia. I mean, they depend on Russia for their uh, for their gas. They're, you know, they're trying to finish the uh, Nord Stream 2 pipeline and, you know, and in the face of American pressure. So, yeah, I mean, if Russia was this big, aggressive country, I mean, you'd think that every other country in the world, every other country in the region would would you'd act against them, and uh, you know that's that's not that's not what we're seeing.
0: Right. Yeah. I, hey, as Victoria Newland said, "F the EU," and what that meant was the Germans are taking too long to do the coup, so we're going to go ahead and do it without them. That was what she was complaining about right there in that part of yeah. the yeah that part of yeah. the call. It, yeah, exactly.
1: I mean, so you see, uh yeah, I so um, you know, this, I, just the, the propaganda, I mean, is just so so crazy because it's like, oh, Russia's interfering in the uh affairs of other countries, uh, we have a rules based international order, everyone can choose their alliances. And it's like you if you you to believe this stuff, you have to be like completely ignorant of American foreign policy and what it's been doing. I mean, you if you have any like clue of American foreign policy, all this stuff just sounds ridiculous. Uh, but you know, they they you know, the propaganda apparently works.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the uh, the uh, now famous Defense One piece by uh, Evelyn Farkas, who had worked for Obama, she talked about how since the end of the Cold War, no borders have changed through violent force. And if we let Russia change that, it'll crumble the entire rules-based international order. And I thought, wow, she's never really heard of the 1999 Kosovo War, huh?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Or when yeah. America
0: just gave part of Western Sahara to Morocco in exchange for them making a trade deal with Israel.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, they they uh, uh, yeah, the. Uh, um, like, yeah, and even, like, look at Crimea, I mean, basically, Russia took it over, and the world didn't crumble, right? Um, Right. You know, this stuff doesn't doesn't matter. I mean, there is a good, uh, you know, there is the fact that there's a uh, norm against territorial conquest, and it's happening less often, is a good thing. Um, And, you know, I wish the U.S. would contribute to upholding that norm by not invading other countries, and also the norm of sovereignty by not, you know, encouraging coups against other countries or overthrowing other countries, then it would be in a position to uh, to, uh, point out the bad behavior of other states. Um, but, you know, we're, we're in no position morally to do that.
0: Yeah. Hey, by the way, um, did you see Rand Paul's piece in the American Conservative magazine? And he was the one Republican in the Senate who voted no on Ted Cruz's thing about this. But Rand Paul uh, said, listen, all this fight about Nord Stream 2 is mercantilism. They're protecting Texas natural gas exporters who want a monopoly on selling uh, CH4 to the uh, Germans and so here this is playing this outsized role in the fomenting of a new cold war with Russia just some
1: yeah. money yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, Rand Paul has been a consistent voice on the Republican side. One of the, uh, fewer, you know, if any, uh, consistently opposed to this stuff. I mean, Mike Lee too has been, uh, has been, uh, uh a little bit, uh, yeah you know, has been to a certain extent against NATO expansion. I think he, he voted against one of the, uh, one or two of the countries, uh, being brought in, um, in the last few years. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I don't know if mercantilism, I mean, I don't know if that's an insult to Republicans now because they, you know, they're, they're sort of open that they're, you know, they're protectionist. Um, but it's, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's it's sort of silly uh, to you know for Ted Cruz to get up there and say, oh, like put Putin's pipeline right. It's like another where another country gets its uh, gets its natural gas from. I mean, it's not really his business,
0: right? Um, and now, yeah, I mean, that's the thing about that term interests, right? They used to sometimes say vital interests, but then they just get to interests, which really could just mean the interests of one or two companies in one of the fifty states. And then that counts.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they often don't tell you what the national I mean the national interest is, right? They, you know, it's uh, it can be ideological, it could be sort of a, you know, they have these things about establishing dis- deterrence or like protecting national honor and yeah, you also have y'all always have to sort of think carefully about what exactly they're arguing for and, and what arguments they're making because it's not always clear.
0: Yeah. Now, you bring up uh, some specific policies of uh, South Korea And for that matter, the Philippines and Vietnam and Germany and other NATO allies where they just do whatever they want when it comes to dealing with the Chinese or dealing with the Russians, like on this Nord Stream 2 pipeline, where the military alliance that we have and, and even our stationing of forces in their countries seem to have no effect whatsoever on the decisions that they're making there. Could you elaborate a bit about that? Yeah,
1: that's 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 right. I mean, because like you know, for the for the reasons I said before, um, the U.S. you know really wants to be there, so they have they don't have much leverage uh, from the from the presence uh, in in any particular country. Um, So, like yeah, example Germany with uh, the Nord Stream two pipeline, which the U.S. really really wants has wanted uh, not to go forward. Um, And then you have um, you know in South Korea, uh, you have uh, basically it's it's accepted Huawei as a you know uh, to come into the country, and you know that that's been fine with. That that's that that has that has been a really big uh, American priority in uh, East Asia. You know, South Korea has generally, um, you know, has generally had tried to get along with China. I mean, they've not uh, you know just, uh, denounced it for anything. It's done internally. It's not. It hasn't cared about uh, you know its issues with uh, Hong Kong or Taiwan. Um, South Korea, you know, in recent years has been often uh, more uh, friendly towards uh, opening relations with North Korea than the U.S. is uh, under under uh, under under Moon. Um, so it's um, so yeah. I mean, you could go to different parts of the uh, the world, and you could see this, and you can see it in the Middle East, you know, the U.S., uh, uh, you know, at least uh, you know has a commitment to defend Saudi Arabia, and Saudi Arabia is doing all kinds of crazy things, everything from the Khashoggi mur- murder uh, to uh, the war in Yemen, which the U.S., you know, got, got behind sort of reluctantly, but doesn't really, um, doesn't, nobody can see how it helps American interests. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you, you could look at every. so the, the report goes and looks at basically, you know, these different regions of the world, and shows, you know, what are we Doing? You know, what is what is the American influence here that comes from the defense relationship?
0: Right. Now, see, I always just sit here moralize about who's getting killed and all this stuff, but I appreciate the academic take too, where you just sort of go, <laughs> Look, we gotta do some ones and zeros and some rational analysis here and it looks like every time we occupy a country, our rivals benefit the most. For example, Iraq and Afghanistan, where Iran and Al Qaeda in Iraq benefited and China and Pakistan, I guess, more than anybody else in Afghanistan, but certainly America didn't get anything whatsoever out of either of those wars.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's so, it's so strange because they're like, oh, you know, we need to build a stable democracy, you know, in Afghanistan. And that's what they've been trying to do for, they were trying to do for 20 years. And it's like, okay, if you did do that, like, so what? Like, you know, Mm -hmm. Afghanistan's biggest trading partner, you know, with the U.S. during the U.S. occupation, the biggest trading partners were Iran and, uh, and China. And so, like, if it's about keeping Iran, you know, if it's like about uh, pushing America, you know, assuming, like, what they say, that Iran and China are uh, American enemies, then why are we, like, you know, uh, invading Afghanistan and then, like, letting it build relationships with these countries and build uh, economic ties? You know, there's there's no sort of connection uh, to logic here. And, of course, you know, you know, you and your audience know about the war in Iraq, how it uh, basically made Iran stronger more than anyone else. I mean, Iraq is also uh, 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 has a pretty good relations with China too. Um, and so there's yeah, there's really no connection between sort of these uh these foreign policy adventures and the national interest, even if you sort of take what they're saying uh at face value, it's sort of as if the war is sort of the point of the war is the war, and then they come up with a justification later.
0: Yeah. Give me just a minute here. Listen, I don't know about you guys, but part of running the Libertarian Institute is sending out tons of books and other things to our donors. And who wants to stand in line all day at the post office? But Stamps.com, sorry, but their website is a total disaster. I couldn't spend another minute on it. But I don't have to either, because there's EasyShip.com. EasyShip.com is like Stamps.com, but their website isn't terrible. Go to scotthorton.org slash EasyShip. Hey, y'all, Scott here. You know, the Libertarian Institute has published a few great books. Mine, Fool's Errand, Enough Already, and The Great Ron Paul. Two by our executive editor, Sheldon Richman, Coming to Palestine and What Social Animals Owe to Each Other. And of course, No Quarter, The Ravings of William Norman Grigg, our late great co-founder and managing editor at the Institute. Coming very soon in the new year will be the excellent Voluntarist Handbook, edited by Keith Knight, a new collection of my interviews about nuclear weapons, one more collection of essays by Will Grigg, and two new books about Syria, by the great William Van Wagenen and Brad Hoff and his co-author, Zachary Wingard. That's libertarianinstitute.org slash books. It does seem like that, doesn't it? That either that or these geniuses really just aren't that smart or something. <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah. I mean, one of the most celebrated foreign policy wise men of at least the previous generation was Zbigniew Brzezinski. And uh, I pointed out in my book, about how in 1997 in the Grand Chess Board, he said, listen, we have got to back the Chinese-Pakistan-Taliban axis in Afghanistan to keep the Iranians, the Russians, and the Indians out. But then that's the exact opposite of the war that we fought for 20 years. It was to back the Hazaras, the Iranians' friends, and the Tajiks and the Uzbeks, the Russians and the Indians' friends, to keep the pakistani's friends the taliban out and then as you said even during the war the chinese were the biggest investors in the place um but i wonder if there's a point where you know it's easy to imagine i guess either way right that they're saying excellent now we've created a crisis now we can solve that and then we'll switch sides again and whatever but it's also pretty easy to imagine that all of them are complete idiots, right? Like the Supreme Court justice last week talking about 100,000 children in the ICU or whatever. They just don't even know what they're talking about at all, these people. So they'll back the Shiite side in Iraq while they're back in the Sunni side in Syria at the same damn time. This kind of thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, they, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a the theme of my uh, recent book, uh, Public Choice Theory and the Illusion of Grand Strategy. You know, they get where that you know the politicians get where they are by being good at politics, and being good at politics doesn't mean you have to actually know anything. Um, you just have to you know look good in front of voters and, and convince them to, to vote for you. And then uh, the people who are like foreign policy uh, people working at think tanks or working in government, they're either selected by the politicians. Often they're you know they're supported by a uh, uh, they're supported by uh, weapons manufacturers. They're supported by foreign governments, and, you know, they're often looking for uh, people who will say the things they want them to say. So the generals, I mean, the generals now, they all go work for defense contractors, I mean, as soon as they're, uh, or some other kind of contra- uh, federal government contractors, um, as soon as they retire. Um, and, you know, the the you know the, the, they they say the things that are in their interest to say, and it doesn't have to make sense. You're right. I mean, we like, we supposedly hate Iran, and then like, you know, we, we get rid of uh, their enemy, Saddam Hussein, and then we have to stay there. Because we have to fight Iran, and then like we're against Al Qaeda, and then uh, you know the Islamists, the uh, Islamists uh, try to throw, overthrow you know the government of Libya. We help them, um, and then we go to Syria, and then we help the other Islamists, you know, over, try to overthrow a, a different government and then we're and then we're in Syria to keep you know, and then we go to Syria to keep the Iranians out, um, and it's all yeah, it's uh, the people. Anyone can look at this and say this is ridiculous, but to these people who sort of have an interest um, and, and having it all make sense and keep pushing for the same policies. Um, you know, it's been very good for them.
0: Yeah. Well, that's the thing about it too, right? Is they always just fail upwards. And I can't believe you wrote a book called that. That sounds so fun. Uh, really, I have a sub chapter of my book is called public choice theory about how we got into the war in Libya, but,
1: Oh, wow. I should, I should, uh, yeah I should have. I'm I'm sorry. I haven't read your books.
0: <laughs> yeah, we'll get this done. But no, I like that, and public choice theory, could you just describe for people real quick in a nutshell what that means? Uh, so public choice theory is basically you're
1: taking the tools of economics and you're using it to uh, 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 understand politics, right? So there's this a sort of, if you have like a, you know, standard sort of international relations analysis, I mean, it's a very naive, you could have a very naive thing where these people are, you know, know, know what they're doing and they're sitting there and they're coming up with a strategy uh, to advance the American interest or, you know, accomplish something in, in geopolit- in geopolitically. Um, and so, you know, that's one way of looking at the world. And the other way of looking at politics is basically you know, they're they're self- interested actors and every and every part of the system is self is uh you look at the parties and you look at what their incentives are. Uh so the you know the idea is what are the incentives of uh politicians? The incentive of politicians is to um uh to get elected. What is the incentive of a voter? Well the voter is just you know they don't have an incentive to really pay attention to to foreign policy or anything else. I mean they're uh you know they're they're uh they're doing things, they're uh deciding things based on based on um you know what sounds good. And then you have um you know the military establishment Establishment, and you have different factions. I mean, the, the, the one of the main lessons of public choice theory—I've been mean, going back to Manker Olson—is uh, the idea uh, that groups with a concentrated interest in a policy outcome are more likely to get their way against groups with a diffuse, di- diffuse interest. So, if you're a weapons contractor, and most of your uh, 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 most or all of your um, um, revenue comes from the government, like say, you know, which is the case for something like Lockheed Martin or Raytheon, um, you have you have a you're, you have an, an Interest into lobbying for, uh, for for outcomes that are you know good for yourself and. People who might have an uh, interest in the more diffuse interests, in the sense that they do not individually gain the te- you know the taxpayer or the rest of society, they don't have they don't have an incentive uh, to uh, t- to push for their to push for the uh, opposite policy outcome than the one that the concentrated interest wants. And so I think that this is the way to understand American foreign policy. If you go into it and you look for coherence, right? You look for a say, oh, we're you know we're enforcing uh, uh, the rules based international order. Or you know we are you know the shining city on the hill, or we're, even we're trying to establish like dominance and you know uh, push other people around. Even even the more cynical uh, takes on American foreign policy. I don't think uh, I don't think foreign policy makes sense from that perspective. But if you look at it as sort of you know just a bunch of people trying to continue getting paid and continue getting power, and you know sometimes they believe it, but they believe it because they're supported by other people um, who have a direct interest in an outcome, or they believe it because it's good for their job. Um, and then you sort of look at the policy is sort of a, you know, in a sense, a series of accidents from like the macro level, from the level of, uh, the, from the level of, uh, uh, you know, what is good for the country as a whole or what is good from the, uh, for the world as a whole. Um, you know, that's just, that's just a better way to understand foreign policy.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, there was, uh, one report was by Josh Rogan and I can't remember who did the other, but there were, there were two or three reports about the conversation on the carpet in the Oval Office when they decided on Libya and you had The secretary of defense and the national security advisor and the deputy national security advisor and the deputy uh, secretary of defense and the vice president and a few others saying, no, we should not do this. And then on the other side, you had Hillary Clinton, Samantha Power and Susan Rice. And Uh they wanted to do it. And all three of them wanted to do it for their own reasons. Uh As uh, Michael Hastings reported, Samantha Power was tired of doing uh, rinky-dink do-gooder stuff on the National Security Council uh, where she had a deputy spot or something and wanted to move up and get a promotion, which worked. She became Uh the uh, ambassador to the United Nations. And then Rice got promoted from, uh, from ambassador to the United Nations to national security advisor. And then this was obviously supposed to be a feather in Hillary Clinton's cap for when she ran for president in 2016, that she'd done this great war as is revealed in all her emails with Jake Sullivan and Sidney Blumenthal and others, that this had nothing whatsoever to do with the people of Libya. It was about these three women and their ambitions. And then Obama sided with them over the Secretary of Defense telling him, you know, we already got two wars, and I don't know if we need another one right now since we were losing these two. Yeah, I mean, Obama said it was a, you know,
1: a 51-49 decision. I mean, right. you you know to go to war i mean you think you maybe you'd want you know you know more uh, certainty than that Uh, the, uh, yeah, and these, um, you know, it's hard to say, you know, whether they just wanted a promotion or even if they're like, you know, they're ideological. I mean, some people really believe that the U.S. can do good across the world. I mean, it's in in the face of all evidence um, based on our interventions, but, you know, presumably some people believe that. And, you know, the point is, I mean, none of them, but, you know, whatever you think their uh, motivations are, the point is none of them thought much carefully about what would come after. I mean, it's not like they, you know, they had a plan for who was going to rule Libya instead it was just like let's break the government and then hopefully something you know good will work out right even if, even if for their own political interests. I mean Libya became you know sort of a uh, if anything it became a hindrance to Hillary's political ambitions because um, you know because of Benghazi and because everyone realized that uh, Libya was a disaster so it wasn't like something she could point to and say you know I'm so proud we did this it was something she really wanted to forget by 2016 um, but, uh, but yeah maybe that's just her not you know not being good at political calculations or maybe you know just as you know, uh, uh, you know, I don't know if it's more pessimistic or optimistic to believe she actually believed this and you know thought that foreign intervention is good for the world and good you know good for her politics because she thinks it's all gonna work out. But if you know if she if she thinks that you know there's a you know there there, there was certain a certain delusion there.
0: Right. Well and the point is where she doesn't have to bear any of the costs. Of so course like not yeah. Her her friend um Anne Marie Slaughter said, well Hillary's point of view is that if something is going on and there could be bad consequences either way then she would rather be caught trying <laughs> I'm not that's that, better uh, than doing nothing. Right. And then, yeah, so yeah. it did, it probably did cost her the presidency. In fact, though, you know what I mean? I think Libya probably was worth a couple percentage points here and there.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it's possible. Yeah. I mean, the, I think because of the Benghazi thing more than actual destroying Libya because right. the Republicans were able to make a big scandal, uh, out of that. um, but yeah, it, it, it's, it's certainly plausible. Yeah. You know, it's the, the, it's such a, uh, you know, the world is so complex that, you know, if you're just going to have a, um, uh, a bias towards doing something, there's a lot more ways to break things than there are to make things better. And, you know, that philosophy is going to lead you to break a lot of things. Maybe once in a while you'll, you'll sort of stumble into something good. Most of the time you probably won't because our government doesn't have the vision and the, uh, uh and the foresight and the knowledge to remake foreign countries. You know, we, they, they barely can govern their own country. You know, our, our state has not been doing so well. So the idea that we can, we're in position to say, you know, this government is bad and should be replaced by something else and we can uh, sort of midwife or f- facilitate that process. Um, I don't know where they get the confidence to believe this.
0: Right. Especially when it's all this foreign interventionism is at the root of what's wrong with the country falling apart the way it is right now. If Just starting with the $10 trillion, but all the societal consequences and everything else of just having the 21st century based around the idea of war in the Middle East this whole time, the way it's been, didn't have to be this way at all. They want to know why they're losing credibility to dictate to other countries. It's the dictating to other countries that's cost Hmm. them their credibility, you know, in every way, it seems like. All right. So wait, here's a segue to our next conversation here about China, which is that you talk about Vietnam, which... You know, funny enough, despite our failed effort to keep the communists from taking over that country in the 1970s, we've got a pretty good relationship with them now, but not as good as we have with the Philippines or Japan. And you say that they are the ones who are most antagonistic towards the Chinese in the region, as opposed to South Korea or the Philippines, who the Americans would like to take a more antagonistic stance. Is that right?
1: Yeah. And so that's the flip side of the coin. The argument is, you know, the U.S. is very close to South Korea. Basically, South Korea depends on the U.S. Uh, for its defense. And South Korea really doesn't do what the U.S. wants. And Vietnam, the U.S. doesn't have a defense relationship. They have, you know, normalized relations now. Uh, but the U.S. basically doesn't, you know, guarantee uh, uh, that it's going to defend Vietnam or that it's going to uh, or doesn't ha- doesn't station troops in Vietnam. And yet Vietnam is um, increasing its military spending more than anyone else in the region and seems scared, you know, seems frightened of China for its own reasons, and you know that's just sort of the flip side of the coin. The, having a uh, uh, strong military relationship doesn't seem correlated um, with uh, with that country doing what the United States wants towards China, and not having a great relationship with the United States doesn't seem correlated with do with not doing what the U.S. wants. Right? They they might end up uh, they might end up um, uh, antagonistic to China. So it's just the, it's just the point that the U.S. relationship system is not really related to American interests or you know American effectiveness in, in seeking out. What it
0: wants. All right. Well, maybe we have a hard time hurting our cats on our side, but isn't it important that we deter Russia from invading Eastern Europe and deter China from conquering Taiwan first and Japan second? (laughs) <laughs> uh
1: well i mean so uh, the so russia i mean so the, you know you have to look at capabilities and intentions right um russia um does not want basically there's no in, you know there's no indication that it's going to go uh invade its neighbors uh, to the extent that there is indication that they're they're going to do so that there's uh, some indication now that uh uh that you know they might go into ukraine and you know by the time uh, your listeners uh, you listeners hear this it might have might have actually happened already um but yeah the reason i mean the reason as we talked about is the reason the the antagonism with ukraine in the first place is because the us has basically been um trying the us um has basically been trying to bring that country into nato it's been trying to bring it into its own uh sphere of influence um russia considers it a historical historically a very important part sort of the the mother you know kiev is sort of the mother of russian uh civilization um so you know ukraine doesn't matter to the us either way i mean there's l- you know, uh, there's no part of the world that matters less. I mean, the, you know, the Balkans in Eastern Europe don't matter either. I mean, these places we, the U.S. after World War II was happy to, you know, not happy to, but, you know, it lived with giving them to the, you know, uh, putting them under Soviet influence or letting them be under Soviet influence. Nobody considered that something uh, worth fighting for. The U.S. could have, you know, tried to go to war and dislodge the Soviet Union uh, from Eastern Europe, but nobody, you know, nobody was uh, uh, calling for us to do that because people understand these regions just don't matter. Um, and and then, uh and then uh you know in East Asia it's similarly I mean the the u.s um, you you know China sees uh Taiwan um, as part of China um they care about that issue much more than than we do um you know is is the is it worth the u.s going to war to stop China I mean people try to come up with reasons they say semiconductors you know you can still buy the semiconductors from China I mean there's no reason you could not there's no reason you couldn't invest you know any any investment to uh, uh for the market to uh to adjust to new conditions will be cheaper than than a war, um, and then you know the idea that you know China would go to war with Japan. Japan is um, Japan is you know one of the tech- most technologically advanced countries in the world. Um, it uh, you know it could have nuclear weapon in uh, you know in months if it wanted to, um, and you know it c- it can defend itself. Now, what you know what what, it, what does China have to go after it? I mean, it would be pretty disastrous. So yeah, I, I think this is these are uh, uh, sort of um, it takes a lot of imagination to sort of imagine these scenarios in which the U.S. needs to be there to prevent some kind of, you know, one of these countries going on a war path. I mean, there's, there's little indication that, you know, that's going to happen.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Gareth Porter wrote this piece about how they had a policy called dual deterrence about how they would let China know periodically that, listen, we really don't want you reunifying with Taiwan by force. That would be really bad. But at the same time, they would not making a direct threat, but sort of implying one. But at the same time, they would tell the Taiwanese, especially The I don't know if you call them the right, the more nationalist, independence-minded ones that you guys need to pipe down with all your provocative statements about declaring full independence and sovereignty because they see that, obviously, as needlessly provocative and could actually cause the war. But, of course, the Taiwanese feel like the more F-16s they got and the more American Navy ships around they have, then maybe, uh, you know, the more confident that they feel or overconfident— To uh, kind of, you know, get louder and talk more about independence. So it seems like it could really be, in other words, a self-fulfilling prophecy where if they didn't feel like we had their back, they might actually mind their manners and be happy with the autonomy that they have and leave it at that instead of picking a fight since they figure that we're going to win it for them, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, when you're trying to do this, yeah, so the, you know, the U.S. foreign policy establishment, it's not as if they just want everything to be as aggressive as possible. Um, you know, they don't like, uh, you know, they don't like to be surprised and they don't like, you know, sudden moves that can uh, force them to do something that's politically, uh, politically potentially difficult. Um, and the problem when you're playing these both sides, you're telling China, you know, don't move into Taiwan and you're telling Taiwan don't antagonize China too much. I mean, you're trying to do too much. You're trying to manage these complex relations and the uh uh, you know the potential for miscalculation is very high so georgia um it provoked the war with uh with russia in this uh during the uh, bush administration uh because they thought that the us had their back and it turns out that that we didn't we weren't ready to do anything uh about georgia right and so you can see the same thing with ukraine ukraine is a lot more belligerent um than it otherwise would be uh towards russia uh because it you know it thinks europe and the us will potentially bail it out or that eventually you know that eventually you know they're going to they're going to come into nato and they're Going to have you know the U.S. Um, the U.S. Uh, just right there and with an ironclad uh, commitment to defend them against Russia. Uh, so yeah, I think it's better if these uh, relationships between these countries reflect the uh, the power realities on the ground. Um, and American um, intervention is often you know just uh, is more often a source of uh, instability here than it is a source of uh, stability and peace.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, now you're convinced in this piece that especially looking forward two and three and four decades from now, that China absolutely is getting rich and will be the dominant power in all of Asia. Is that correct? Yeah, okay.
1: Yes, right. I mean, look, uh, middle income, you know, the U- China has passed the U.S. on uh, GDP, depending on how you measure, or it's going to pass it, you know, the next uh, decade or so. Um, China has 1.4 billion people. It's a highly innovative economy, uh, you know, for uh, it's, it's, it's really an outlier in how innovative it is um, for a middle income country. Um, and so it's going to, you know, it's going to, it's just, you know, it's, uh, the, pop- the population size plus the innovation plus the growth in the coming decades, you know, China will be the biggest, uh, will be the biggest economy in the world. I mean, unless something you know extreme happens, you can't tell the future with certainty. But that's what you have to expect to be the uh, most likely outcome. Um, and then, g- given that's the case, you know, what are we going? You know, what are we going to do with it? With that uh, information, are we going to um, artificially try to keep the same uh, level of American influence in East Asia and the American dominance that uh, existed back when China was a uh, was a third world country and basically you know had limited power to project abroad and limited economic links with the rest of the World, um, I you know I don't think that that's a realistic policy. Um, so we, I think we're going to have to re- you know uh, really get used to. I mean, and this is we're in the growing pains of it now. We're going to really have to get used to a, uh, bi- a, a bipolar world, but we really more multipolar. I mean, and you could you know India is also growing, and and uh, uh, you know there's there's potentially you know there's uh, potentially other countries out there that can you know that can rise if if they if they get their house in order. Um, and Russia, you know, is not a, not the economically the strongest in the country, but definitely uh, militarily. You know, it's it, it, it's certainly a force in its region. It's a bigger force than the U.S. and uh, Eastern Europe as far as uh, having uh, ground troops. Um, you know, the the sort of denial of power realities. We can see this in this is this is never a good thing in foreign policy. This was this was what we saw in Afghanistan, where you know the Afghan government was a house of cards, and the Taliban was a real uh, fighting and uh, potentially governing force. And we tried to sort of delay the inevitable. There. And I think we're, um, I, I think we're hoping for things that are really not possible in East Asia, given the power dynamics. And you know, the, the report is a uh, uh, is an argument for not doing that and taking a
0: more realistic approach. Sorry, hang on just one second. Hey guys, anybody who signs up to listen to this show by way of Patreon will be invited to join the Reddit group, and I'm going to start posting stuff over there more. That's Patreon.com/slash Scott Horton Show. Thanks. Hey y'all, LibertasBella.com is where you get Scott Horton Show and Libertarian Institute shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, and stickers and things, including the great top lobsters designs as well. See, that way it says on your shirt why you're so smart. Libertasbella, Bella, from the same great folks who bring you ammo.com for all your ammunition needs too. That's LibertasBella.com. You guys check it out. This is so cool. The great Mike Swanson's new book is finally out. He's been working on this thing for years. And I admit, I haven't read it yet. I'm going to get to it as soon as I can. But I know you guys are going to want to beat me to it. It's called Why the Vietnam War? Nuclear bombs and nation building in Southeast Asia, 1945 through 61. And as he explains on the back here, all of our popular culture and our retellings and our history and our movies Are all about the height of the american war there in say 1964 through 1974 but how do we get there why is this all harry truman's fault find out in why the vietnam war by the great mike swanson available now well so i wonder what you think about all the people on the right who are so concerned that we're not just seeing the rise of china in asia but that they're going to replace america as the unipolar world empire here and we are going to be subject to their will here in north america
1: yeah i mean it's it's bizarre i mean you know the idea that china has political influence in the us i mean there's no country in the world that is more immune um to influence from other powers um than the US is. I mean the US supports uh you know non-government organizations and all these countries that funds, you know, journalists and open, you know, it does it does this these things, it interferes in politics and it it dictates to countries and it does this openly, right? Uh, so China, I mean you could, you know, they're uh you know they're an economic power. They're they're a military power. Are they a propaganda power? Are they do they have, you know, a way to influence the American system? You know, in certain ways they do, I mean, because businesses do want to do business with them. Um, and there's, you know, mutual, you know, there's a potential for mutual benefit from trade. That's not an evil thing. I mean, that's what, you know, that's how countries behave and that's, you know, that can be in the interest of all involved, um, when it's based on, uh, when it's based on, uh, uh, consent between the parties. Um, but I think, you know, I think for the U S to, you know, I think for people to get really excited about a, uh, uh, you know, a more antagonistic approach to China, I think they really have to exaggerate, um, sort of the harm of what China, uh, potentially can do to the United States or what it potentially wants to do with the U.S. Or, you know, its power to influence, you know, American politics. And, uh, you know, I think these things tend to be very, very exaggerated uh, for reasons, you know, for whatever psychological reasons or for, you know, whatever interest people have in a uh, more conflictual approach to China.
0: Yeah. Um, And I guess they would have the same problem that we have. It's a long way from here. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I I don't know how they're supposed to dominate us, but. Uh, yeah. You know, I'll it's tell you such what. Such I did meet a guy such who yeah, such a
1: simple fact that you know, yeah, you know, we forget this. Yes, they are yeah. a long way from here, right? That is a, that is a good thing to keep in mind, and yeah. people generally don't.
0: So the most credible thing I heard about that from uh, somebody was he started off talking about Africa, and I don't even really know the truth of this, but he was saying that millions now of Chinese have moved to Southern Africa. And that this is, you know, ethnic replacement, man. This is real colonization <laughs> going on here. And they could pull the <laughs> same the, thing in Mexico in another 50 or 100 years. And they got there's so many Chinese that they got plenty to go around. That's great.
1: Look at look at the birth rate of Chinese and look at the birth rate of Africans, and then then tell me there's an ethnic replacement in Africa. That that is absolutely insane. China is having a, a you know population shrinkage, and they're you know they're they're uh, you know they're, they're having enough trouble getting their own birth rate up and just maintaining their numbers. Yeah. Right. I think that's I think this is a this is a this is a fantasy. I mean, millions of white people moved to Africa. Right. I mean, uh, you know, in South Africa, there's you know Europeans all over the continent. I would bet there's more Europeans still uh, than there are China. Uh, Chinese. And Africans, I'm not sure about that. Oh yeah, of course. When you count the uh, white South African population, uh, right? Um, so yeah, this seems like a yeah, this seems like another one of those one of those things. You know, it's it's hard because you have to shoot down every one of these things individually, right? They say China is controlling the U.S., and you say no, that's not true. And then they say, oh, China is ethnically replacing the Africans, and they're going to move into Mexico. And you say that's not true, and then you know, then they'll make up something else, right? And that's why it's so hard to argue with these people, and you have to understand that there's sort of uh, you know, there's sort of a need to have an enemy
0: yeah and that really is what it is and it's funny in it too how everybody understands this ike eisenhower coined the phrase you just can't escape that you know regulatory capture by the arms industries or not just regulatory but government capture by the arms industry everybody knows that that's what's going on here everybody knows that you know the first time you ever find out what's a think tank oh Well, that's what the arms manufacturers pay these egghead weenie guys to sit around writing excuses for weapon sales. You know, it's just, it's the open conspiracy right in front of all of us. You know?
1: Yeah the, uh, you're, yeah, you're absolutely, I mean, you're, you're right. I think that people should know this, but, you know, I think that, you know, shouldn't underestimate how much, you know, the, the propaganda think tanks and in the media and from government, I mean, the, they work on somebody, you know, that's why they, uh, that's why they invest so much uh, money and effort into them. So yeah, I think there are a lot of people who are genuine believers who, who just, you know, accept the propaganda that, you know, they have a, maybe an instinct to, you know, to, uh, you know, that they, it's easy to convince people that foreigners are out to get them and they don't have any personal experience. They don't, know, you know, anybody from China or anybody from Russia or anything. And I think it's very, very easy for people to buy into these things. And I think that, you know, what, you what people like you do and what i what i do is point out like look the entire information space um has been shaped with people who have very uh, kind of narrow uh interests or have some kind of ideological interest and they're not the people who necessarily they, they you know they don't necessarily um have the you know the same ideas or the same uh interests as the, as the rest of the country does and i think you know just pointing that out to people that's one of the things i do in my book and and i try to do in my writing um i think that's a you know that's very important so sort of uh um to sort of discrediting uh, uh, this class to a large extent.
0: Yeah. All right. So how's the alliance system shaping up in the East now? We have Australia and South Korea and Japan. These are already our allies, but they're trying to kind of bring everybody really together to hem in the Chinese in a way. So what's the status of that project?
1: Yeah, so there is, you know, talk that, you know, the, of like the Quad, right, which is the uh, uh, U.S. and uh, Austra- uh, Australia, India, uh, and Japan, right, they're going to have sort of an alliance, you know, not officially against China, but, you know, sort of really against China. And there's more, especially from like Australia, uh, there is more of a sense of like, you know, talking talking a big game about China. Um, and so, the, you know, but, but how much that actually translates, you know, into um, something, you know, really important. It, it, it's um, you know we'll, we'll see um, it, you know the, it's easy for these countries to sort of tell the u.s you know what the u.s wants to hear um, you know I think the better question to see what's going to happen in the next years is do they invest more in their uh, uh, do they invest more in their militaries uh, do they actually uh, take steps to not trade as much with China there's little indication of that happening so until you get to that point I mean the talk you know the, the uh, sort of the discourse and the way they they're Attitudes towards China um, is, you know, is 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 not nothing. Um, it, it's something, but I think to, to to gauge sort of the extent of the importance of what's going on and countries moving towards the U.S., I think you know I think you need to look for some hard metrics there. I think what you know what the what most countries in the region want and what they've wanted um, uh, for the uh, previous decades is they don't want to choose between the U.S. and China. They just want to trade with each of them and they want to basically have sovereignty in their affairs and they don't want to be forced to choose one side or the other. And the U.S., you know, the sort of the uh, the uh, raising debt of the uh, of the foreign policy establishment is becoming um, to uh to counter China and so I think they're feeling a lot of pressure from the American side. In some, in some cases, no, that they I mean they really just dislike China. I mean Japan has you know has had a t- tough relationship in the last decade with China. And India has their own um, conflict with China, right? They have they had this border dispute that's gone back many decades. Um, but do they actually? But are these countries actually interested in a substan- substantive alliance that will cost something on their end? Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it, it's uh, it's yet to be it's yet to be proven um, if that's the case. I mean, the country like Japan, you know, has very low, uh, low birth rates, has very low economic growth. I mean, the China is, uh, you know, is, is economically rising very quickly. You know, it doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense that they want to they'd want to pick a fight with China at this point. But, you know, they're they're uh, they're hosting a lot of American troops. So maybe it doesn't matter to them either way. Right. Um, so, yeah, we'll see what happens in the coming decades. Hmm.
0: Now. Um, I'm not sure if you saw this piece by John Mueller at uh, the Quincy Institute a couple of weeks ago there. Uh, China's been a failure at hegemony, so let's just chill. And, of course, John Mueller's the author of Overblown and the Stupidity of War. And, uh-huh. you know, pretty much a Cato guy when it comes to foreign policy. And uh, he's saying, you know, they're not very good at throwing their weight around. Uh, you know, they're as clumsy as we are when it comes to that kind of thing. They're wolf warrior diplomacy. Just makes everyone resent them and uh it's you know and and sort of uh to the point that you're bringing up there a second ago about how many neighbors they have they have a lot of neighbors <laughs> it right. seems like each one of those countries where they got a dozen international borders surrounding them one way or the other seems like that's just enough to keep them busy just trying to keep the peace at all times never mind trying to be the dominant force in Bhutan and Pakistan and Outer Mongolia and everywhere else too, you know?
1: Yeah, I, yeah. I I think that Mueller is right. I mean, I don't think they're very good at it. I don't think they want what the U.S. wants, right? The U.S. wants basically a veto over the internal politics of every country in the world, and China just doesn't doesn't care that much um, about what uh what other countries do. Um. So yeah, I mean, they're very limited. They're not very good at the the propaganda game. They're not very good at sort of uh covert operations. China just has not not this has not been their strengths, and it's not something they've prioritized or you know cared about as much as other places do. I mean they care about certain things like they really care about making sure another country you know doesn't recognize Taiwan but they don't care like for example whether you're a democracy or a, you know a dictatorship or or how you get along with your neighbors that's just not that's just not something that they're uh, that they're you know that, that that they're into and I think the you know American sort of uh, ambitions abroad and it's sort of uh, uh, sense of its role in the world is so expansive um, that we sort of project out other countries. Oh, of course, China is going to try to, you know, interfere in the you know, affairs of other countries and overthrow them and, you know, do crazy things like invade, you know, invading Iraq like we did. And just because we do these crazy things and, you know, we are sort of, uh, you know, taking a, take an expansive view of our role in the world doesn't mean that's how other countries are going to behave. And, you know, we should keep that in mind.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, so tell me about the future then. You're the deputy national security advisor and you're writing our new national security strategy. Help me see what the next 30 years look like then as far as how we should be dealing with China.
1: Uh, okay, so, how uh, yeah, so, I mean, I think we should be pretty much, um, you know, looking for a way to acknowledge the fact that China is going to be um, the dominant power in East Asia. I think one of the reasons that we have such, um, we have such uh, uh, antagonism towards China and Russia is because we have, an, you know, we still, in the back of our mind, believe that these countries are illegitimate, because they don't have the same kind of uh, government that we do, um, that basically that, you know, the, Russia should have, I think Russia is the ultimate target of the color, color revolutions, China, you know, we, we, um, you know, I think that, that it's the same thing here. It's like, we, you know, we, th- we think that the system is fundamentally, uh, illegitimate. And I think that we take regime change off the table and we basically, um, we don't, we acknowledge that, you know, it's not for us to decide how every country in the world lives. I think a lot of, you know, I think a lot of attentions, um, go away. So I would be more explicit on that point. Basically I would, you know, I would, uh, uh I would not, uh, fund these, you know, sort of, they call them civil, uh, you know, um, Ah, uh, civil society organizations. You know, so they, can, they, they're, they are. You know, they're basically pawns of uh, our uh, agents of American influence abroad. Um, I think. You know, I think that you can encourage Taiwan to you know, take responsibility for its own defense. Um, you know, it's uh, it's a technologically very advanced country. It's a rich country. Does that mean it can hold out against China? Probably, you know, probably, probably not. I mean, so, you know, it's going to have to, you know, find a way to live in a sort of one country. I think you would get a one country, two systems, right? I think that the Chinese, you know, the Chinese uh, um, haven't, you know, they're no longer a communist state. So I think they would basically, they would basically uh, limit Taiwan's autonomy, but they would end, they would end up, basically, the Taiwan. Can live a very good life under under Chinese rule or sort of under a, a neutral state, um, and so I think this is you know this is what we need. I think we need to basically step back from from East Asia. I mean, it really doesn't it doesn't matter uh, much to us at all. You know, globally, I think we need to. I think the sanctions regime is um, you know a, really a, a war crime. I mean, what we've done to countries like Venezuela and Syria um, and Cuba, they, you know, their own governments have serious problems, but we've made the 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 uh, the, the problems of these people. The people in these countries, you know, much, much worse um, through cutting them off from the global economy. And I would, yeah, I would not do any regime change wars. Um, and you know, I would focus on the things that you know we have in common, that we that we care about, things like uh, uh, things like nuclear proliferation, um, things like um, you know climate policy and energy policy and global pandemics. I mean, there's so much, so many things that are actually important to the U.S. in a way that you know, who rules rules over East Eastern Ukraine is not important, right? And because we you know we have these antagonistic relationships, we ignore cooperation on the important things and we focus on where we disagree on these things that fundamentally are important, uh, to us or to the wider world. Um, so yeah, it would have a, you know, less militaristic, less uh, interventionist foreign policy and one based on more on uh, mutual respect and cooperation.
0: Yeah. Now you write in here that, um, the theory, I guess this was mostly from the, uh, University of Chicago, uh, Milton Friedmanite types that, um, the more, uh, Chinese society becomes capitalistic the more uh democratic their political system will become too
1: yeah i would i wouldn't blame the university of chicago or Milton friedman types for that that ec- economist i i think that's uh, more of you that was in like political science than it really was the economic people okay
0: well and so you say that that proved that uh, there couldn't be anything more wrong but i followed the footnote and it was just a hillary clinton speech so i thought that must have been a mistake but i wonder uh i mean if you can't uh replay the counterfactual and all of that but i and and I know it does sound, I guess, slightly utopian or whatever, but I don't know. I mean, it seemed to make sense on the face of it. But I was thinking that maybe the big variable at play is America's terror wars this whole century long so far, and that if our government hadn't been bathing in the blood of two million dead, innocent people and backing Al-Qaeda in Libya and Syria and Yemen, and just the madness, the chaos that they've inflicted in Central Asia as well this whole time, that then when they talked about the Declaration of Independence and the natural rights of man and things like that, they, it wouldn't just sound like ridiculous propaganda from completely morally and financially wow. bankrupt people in a collapsing empire, <laughs> That's the kind of thing that maybe even Saudi society and Chinese society would have had to take seriously that, you know, the Americans talk all the time about how their bill of rights is better. And geez, maybe we should have fairer trials and maybe we should have an independent judiciary and Maybe we could have done a little bit better in pushing the best of our ideas of political freedom in the world if it wasn't for all the hypocrisy, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, so unquestionably, when the U.S. you know does things like you know prosecute Julian Assange, when it invades other countries, even when we have you know like deep partisanship and deep you know problems with our system, the rest of the world does see that, and it does make us look hypocritical. Um, it does take away much of our credibility. You know, at the same time, you know, we should, you know, I, I think there's you know a limit to what we can do. So even if we behave you know angelically, it doesn't necessarily mean every country is going to move you know in the direction um, that we'd like right. we'd like to move. And, you know, these countries, I mean, they have different, there are different historical, you know, uh, points, you know, you can't just say we're going to tear, you know, people should tear everything uh, down and, you know, build a democracy, but, you know, we should, I think, be um, showing people what works. And, you know, the Soviet Union collapsed, um, not because, like, you know, we, like, uh, supported an insurgency or anything, but because they saw that their economic system didn't work. um, And they wanted to, basically, they wanted to try something else. I mean, they lost faith in their own system. And, you know, like, it seems like today, like, we don't care, like, if our our system is not working. We just want to force it down everyone's throat, right? Like you know, our you know these same people who think like democracy is over in the U.S. and they keep talking about like you know Trump and Republicans are are uh, are basically ruining our democracy and we you know we're moving away from a democracy. They're at the same time wanting to force you know so what they call democracy onto the rest of the world. And so you're right. I think it's it's uh, I don't know how much like you know we, you know we our sort of moral rectitude can influence other countries, but I do think it's looking more and more ridiculous as time goes on
0: yeah well and you know it's funny too that they overthrow a democracy in a heartbeat if it stands in their way Uh, like the one in ukraine yeah Uh, you know a democratically elected leader that leans toward russia well forget him we'll do a street putsch with a bunch of neo-nazis to throw him (laughs) right out of office even when he agreed to new elections in a couple of months not good enough (laughs) and started a war over it you know what i mean that's what they think about democracy and in fact you know The only thing wrong with our country is that they haven't done a regime change in Moscow yet. And if they had back in, say, 2011, then Putin wouldn't have been able to destroy our democracy in 2016. Otherwise, everything else that our establishment has done to be the stewards of this nation and this world empire the last 20 or 30 years has been perfect.
1: You know, uh, yeah, I I tweeted out today, there was a State Department, it was, uh, it put out a a document, the top five Russian, you know, uh, points of Russian disinformation, most, you know, persistent disinformation myths. And like, one of them was like, Western civilization is falling apart because it's, uh, because it's moving away from traditional values and because of, you know, multiculturalism and uh, LGBTQ rights and like, these are things that like a lot of Americans actually believe. So like, to say this is just like a narrative, you know, that Russia invented. Um, that's very convenient for people who don't want to think that there's just actually Americans who just disagree with them very, very strongly on some things. And so there was this idea that, oh my, you know, oh my goodness, the the American people couldn't have elected somebody like Donald Trump, right? It was like a few Russian Facebook ads. Um, It wasn't like something deep in our, you know, in our culture and American uh, politics. And you see the same thing on the right, you know, sometimes they like, they blame China for like dividing us and they just, it's just crazy. It's like, you know, where do you see the Chinese presence in like American uh, political culture so often uh, you know people want to believe certain narratives that flatter themselves they they want to absolve themselves of problems that they've caused within society um and then they want to blame it all foreigners and they think if they can convince people of that they will get you know uh you know they, they, they they'll be able to obtain political power and sort of move the country in the direction that they want to go and that's just an unfortunate sort of recurring theme of our politics
0: right All right. Well, listen, thank you so much for doing the show today, Richard. It's been really great. And I really enjoy reading you, too.
1: It's been a pleasure, Scott. Thank you very much.
0: Aren't you guys that's Richard Hanania, and he is at Defense Priorities. Check out this one It's called Phantom Empire, the illusionary nature of U.S. military power and also the inevitable rise of China, U.S. options with less Indo-Pacific influence. And his book is Public Choice Theory and the Illusion of Grand Strategy. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., APSradio.com, Antiwar.com, ScottHorton.org, and LibertarianInstitute.org.